My name's Tim Dalgleish. I'm a clinical psychologist and a basic researcher, and I work at the University of Cambridge in a department called the Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit, um, which tries to understand fundamental questions in mind and brain health and use those insights to develop new interventions or new understandings in applied uh, domains. So I'm interested, first of all, in thinking about trauma and mental health, just a big picture. And I wonder what your thoughts are, you know, thinking as trauma as a thing, as a factor in, you know, it's not at all like poverty or racism, but thinking of it as a factor in that sense. How important do you think it is in relation to mental health difficulties that we experience as a population? Yeah, so I think there's two issues there. There's a kind of prototypical view of trauma, which is some horrible event comes along, which is relatively discreet. Um, and I think really we, t we try to think of it not as something that can ob objectively be quantified, but really as something which has a profound effect on the way you think about yourself or the world around you. So it can actually, from other, other people's perspective, seem like a relatively minor thing, um, but it's a function of the impact it has. But I think there is a bigger question about whether trauma should be considered on a on a continuum from these rather prototypical events to, you know, contexts that you may have experienced over longer periods of time. So, and obviously, near nearby on that continuum would be contexts where there's lots of trauma, such as an abusive childhood or an abusive relationship. But then there's broader social um, and community-based contexts like uh, poverty or deprivation. And I think really they all, they all need to be considered in the mix. And I think what we really need is a sort of theoretical understanding about how they, how those things relate to each other. So I think the key is going back to the point I made about the, the impact that trauma has on people. If you think what we carry around is a sort of model of ourselves and the world and how they operate and how we can function within that. But those models are incredibly historical. So any kind of set of circumstances which has made those models dysfunctional for our day-to-day -day living um, which has been aversive can be thought of in that kind of in that broader conceptualization of trauma it's basically given you a model of yourself as maybe not coping well or vulnerable or damaged or a model of your environment as dangerous or unpredictable and noxious and that can just be one thing that happens that's so severe that it turns those models upside down very quickly or it could be a gradual accretion of experiences over time. But I think that's the way we really need to think about it. And when we do that, we realize that many people with mental health problems have that in their background. They have a series of often events or multiple small events or big events, but sometimes just whole periods of their lives which have set them up in this way. And I think it's really important to understand those things if we're going to do a proper 360 degree evaluation of how they're getting on and how they might go forward. I'm interested in what you think about how mental health professionals respond currently when they, you know, when people that they're caring for have experienced trauma and that kind of comes up. Um, because presumably that's incredibly diverse at the moment. Um, what's your sense of how well that works currently in our system in the UK? That's a really good question. So I think one 
key issue is there's a sort of very simple linear framework that people have around trauma, so, which I, I would say was sort of PTSD-centric. So we've got an idea of a relatively circumscribed event or set of events. We've got a, an idea of a set of symptoms or a diagnosis like PTSD. And we've got some exceptionally good, perhaps some of the best we have, evidence-based interventions for PTSD. So I think when people um, encounter trauma in a clinical context, they often divert them to this very straightforward PTSD-centered paradigm. Um, and that's been there since the beginnings of the DSM. It used to be called, I think, in DSM-1, gross stress reaction, and then adjustment reaction of adult life in DSM-2, and then PTSD in DSM-3. But it's always been this very simple thing. Um, so I think well, that's one issue. People it pushes people to quite a simplistic intervention model. I think another issue is the opposite, that people find it very, very difficult if they haven't been exposed clinically to much work with people who've experienced trauma in the past. And they kind of collude with the um, the service user um, often to kind of, you know, play the trauma down or not talk about it or um, not get not get into the details. And so I think that's another issue, and especially find that working with children and young people that um, mental health workers who've not had much training find it quite difficult to push children to talk about difficult things. Whereas actually when you do work with young people and encourage them to do this, that they've often been desperate to find someone to talk to about it because everybody around them is being slightly phobic. And then I think... Um, corollaries of that are the relationship between trauma and other mental health presentations that aren't you know a, a, a standard kind of PTSD um, prototype it's very it, it's less clear what the relationship might be and what you might do about it so I think there's a range of issues that come up come up there <laughs> When that's the case, when we've got such different routes into mental illness, where trauma is a factor, where it's so complex. I mean, just to think of a few examples, you know, you might have a car crash and that might lead to a trauma which makes you very anxious as a person whenever you're near a road. Or you might experience sexual abuse as a child and that might lead to an eating disorder. Or you might have, um, you know, a lifetime of racist abuse that might lead to low mood and poor self-esteem and suicidal thinking and trauma is a factor in all of those the way that we organize our services currently is very kind of disorder specific um do you think that's the right way to help people in relation to trauma and the illness that it might be leading to no i mean i i mean i'm i'm a strong advocate of what might, one might think of as a transdiagnostic approach um, or even a, a diagnostic approach so I think um, it's, it seems more fruitful and I, and I think trauma is a perfect example of this where we've got this very PTSD linear view of trauma to PTSD to PTSD treatment it seems much more profitable uh, clinically to try and understand what the the whole profile of problems someone has and then come up with, you know, what clinicians would call a formulation. How how do these problems grounded in, in the past? And you may not end up dealing with those past issues, 
because for some people it might just be there's some maintaining cycles of thoughts and behaviors that you need to break and once you break those they actually find their way out or it might just be that there's certain skills that people need or they might just need to change something in their life like they're in an abusive relationship or a very stressful situation um but really you you really want to try and understand how those things fit together and i think that's going to be quite different for each and in each individual person and so the idea that there's a sort of one size fits all um uh kind of cookie cutter diagnostic approach that you can take um i think doesn't doesn't really work especially where trauma is involved so what you end up doing is um either thinking it's all about the trauma so let's do a ptsd treatment or it's nothing to do with trauma. We're working with someone with a panic disorder or if you're taking a diagnostic approach or something like that. So you ignore the trauma when in fact, in both those cases, the first you need to say, well, maybe there's other problems as well as intrusive memories and thoughts and PTSD type symptoms. And in the second, you need to understand the role of trauma in those um, other problems. So yeah, I would advocate a a formulation-based transdiagnostic approach, ideally. So does that mean a complete reorganization of mental health services? Well, so what what you find in my experience in mental health services is they're organized in a particular way and people are trained in a particular way. So when I did my clinical training, it was all diagnosis-based interventions. People then start working with actual patients, realize that that doesn't that you never really meet anyone who fits into those boxes and within a year or two you've developed your own kind of eclectic formulation based approach that tries to do the things i've just been talking about so when you talk to uh, experienced clinicians they never do you know the interventions that are done in the clinical trials because then they you know then they're, they're left with people with a bunch of problems that haven't been solved um, and so I think however the services are organized, people still end up working this way. But of course, ideally, we would train people and organize our services along those lines. Um, and actually, it's more parsimonious, probably, once you bite the bullet, because instead of, say, I don't know how many of our uh, evidence-based interventions might be used in a routine clinical psychology service, probably 30 or 40, you could do one or two bigger you know, flexible, modular or universal transdiagnostic interventions, which could be used with pretty much everybody. Um, and so I, 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 although it's a big change and those interventions are hard to do because it brings more individuation and almost more of the art rather than the science into the clinical work because you have to try and understand what's going on. You can't just do it by numbers. I think in the end, in the end it would actually be cheaper, easier and bring better results i suppose in the 20 years or so that i've been working in mental health i've noticed a real change in people discussing trauma and adverse childhood experiences and all this kind of stuff in mental health practice it's it's, it's a topic that comes up again and again and you know we've got this trauma-informed care movement and it's certainly something where the response from mental health professionals is quite different to how it used to be. Although that, as we've said already, that's quite patchy still. What doors do you think that opens for mental health science? The fact that we've got this interest within frontline practice. I'm interested in how you think those transdiagnostic interventions can be developed. You know, what the science is going to look like, how 
the process is going to work to develop that and then to get it into practice. Yeah, so I think there's a few issues that come up from that question. I think the first is, you know, we've got to understand the development of health services and the way people talk about mental health, you know, in a broader socio, social and cultural context. And, I, and, I, and actually, I think the, the symptoms of, of post-traumatic psychology in the individual are kind of mirrored at the social level. So you have periods where it just intrudes and it's very prevalent and then periods of denial. So if we think about things like shell shock in World War I, there was quite a lot of interest within the clinical professions, which completely disappeared in between World War I and World War II. And then in World War II, it's just as if this thing is discovered all over again. And then it disappeared again until Vietnam. And then it's been around and hasn't gone away. And the same with child, child sexual abuse. I mean, now I think it's got currency within society and within, but, you know, it's not new. And it, it, it again, has emerged and been suppressed over history. And I think um, this is a really good time um, if, in, in the sense of good as in at least we're being open and we're talking about these things we're acknowledging that all the, these horrible dark things exist and it doesn't seem to be being suppressed but but who knows so I think that's one thing it's 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 really good that it's now got a lot more currency um, the other question how do we change the nature of health services it's a really interesting question. So when you're, when you're an academic clinician like I am, um, you're faced with two choices. It's like, well, do you develop interventions which fit the current health service model? So you can't develop a, you know, we did a trial a few years ago on treatment-resistant depressive-type problems where we were doing 55 sessions of CBT plus collaborative care. And everyone said, well, what's the point of that? The, the no, no one can commission that kind of thing. It's like, well, because we think that's what you need. And it's not our fault. That, <laughs> um, but you could just say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try and develop three or four session interventions which fit the current funding model. Um, and so my view is, well, we should do what we think is right and then hope that we can somehow bat, bash against the door enough that things things will change. So, but as I said, it's a big a big deal because you have to change the training model, and so on and so forth. So, our our approach is to try and develop these more complex, modular transdiagnostic interventions, which we think are better. But we realise that they're not the zeitgeist of quicker, or dirtier, um, in in the door out the door interventions that are in the current NHS. But I I feel like I don't want to I don't want to have the tail wagging the dog so much for, for for what I do so I'll probably end up <laughs> for, you know, uh, um, having in, an intervention which is very very hard to sell to commissioners and to encourage people to use but I still think that's the right way forward so right now with this global pandemic what is your message to frontline mental health practitioners in relation to trauma, what would your advice be about how they should educate themselves, how they should be able to deliver the best possible care for people? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the first thing is trauma is a very normal response to a lot of the things that people will have been experiencing. And so what a watchful waiting response for at least three, four months is 
is is the best approach. I don't think you want to be trying to intervene too much in those early days. It's completely normal for people to have complex bereavement reactions or post-traumatic stress reactions, which last you know for se- several months and can be quite bad. And then they generally remit over time. And of course, there's evidence from the debriefing literature that trying to intervene in those early days can actually be quite harmful because it undermines people's own naturalistic way of dealing with it i think what you really need to look for are the people four five six months down the line who have become stuck and and then i think um as i've said i think you need a sort of person-centered formulation-based approach but um so it will vary whether it's a bereavement problem or other forms of of trauma but then i think there's a suite of um, interventions available and what you shouldn't do is ignore ignore the role of trauma in those people who are s- that that far down the line it's really important to um, make sure that people with suitable training in dealing with trauma are are involved in their care i'm interested in you kind of giving us a bit of an elevator pitch for your talk at the conference if people are listening to this and they're thinking oh i might go to that session tell us what you're hoping to cover, who you're hoping will come along. Yeah, so what I wanted to do was um, take the whole transdiagnostic approach that has been applied to psychiatry generally and apply it specifically to the aftermath of trauma. So I want to challenge the PTSD-centric approach. Um, but I also want to you know, then go the other way and talk about some of the things we've talked about, that the majority of problems that we encounter as clinicians have some kind of trauma in the background. So there's this trauma phobia on the one hand and PTSD centrism on the other. Um, And then I just, I think also part of that challenge, um, some of the constructs that we're very familiar with, like PTSD as part of a broader transdiagnostic argument. So we know that, you know, PTSD has about 90% comorbidity with other diagnoses. Um, it has massive symptom overlap with multiple other diagnoses. About 15% of people have PTSD symptoms without meeting the criteria. So all of those things suggest that it's a rather simplistic (laughs) conceptualization and that actually there's something much more complex going on. And then I think towards the end, I want to move to this broader question about, well, maybe we need to start deconstructing the notion of trauma and just to think about the significant events that have happened in people's lives that might play a role in why they're struggling at the moment. And they don't have to be these prototypical trauma events. They can be all sorts of experiences on a continuum. And um, once we start doing that, maybe we would even want to revolutionize even the diagnostic approach and think about having a trauma qualifier for all disorders as opposed to a small number of trauma-related disorders. if you wanted to stick with diagnoses, that would be a way forward. So I'm trying to be provocative. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to. I suppose a good way to sum it up would be the the view in the PTSD world is if it's not broke, don't fix it. We've got a great conceptualization diagnosis. We've got a clear etiology. We've got some great treatments. What's the problem? And I suppose my my conclusion is well, if it ain't broke, then break it. Thank you.